Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand made famous by John McEnroe, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. The new Young Line sneaker they rolled out is tremendous. It's my favorite walk-around shoe. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He grew up in a tennis family in Ostrava, Czechoslovakia, and in 1978 was the number one ranked junior in the world. Over the course of his 16-year career, he won 94 tournaments, including three French Opens, three U.S. Opens, and two Australian Opens. He was number one in the world for 270 weeks. The great Ivan Lendl is today's guest. Can you hear me uh, okay? I hear you perfectly fine. That's beautiful. Now, do I have it right that you are driving? I'm in Connecticut driving to my house from a golf tournament. Ah, okay. How'd you do? Uh, Not very good. 24th. First of all, the gentleman you hear was number one in the world from September 1985 to 1988. He appeared in 19 Grand Slam finals. He won eight he is by far the greatest player that we've had on our show and that's Yvonne Lendl. My man, thank you very much for coming on. No, that's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. Now, is it true that you golf lefty and chip righty? Is that a fact? I do golf lefty and I have a bad left wrist, so uh, chipping for me is uh, difficult. So I do chip righty. I I do it both ways, but uh, sometimes righty, sometimes lefty. That's incredible. Now, we do a five-set format. The first set is the the off-the-court report. What has this time been like for you, this uncertain time during this pandemic? Well, obviously, it's frustrating, just like for everybody else. Luckily, I move outside most of the day, whether it's uh, training with my dog or or, uh, playing golf and things like that. So... uh, I'm not affected as much as uh, some other people, but uh, I do uh, feel everybody's frustration as well. Um, you know, we didn't have any sport on TV. You have no fans when you see the sport. At least now the sports are back. So, uh, uh, and you know, businesses are shut down, and it, it's frustrating. Now I've seen that you've you've stayed somewhat busy doing some social media press initiatives with Tennis One and also with the UTR. What's that been like for you? I, I enjoy that. Uh, I, I do watch some tennis, uh, especially the majors. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy talking about it. That being said, let's move directly into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. What were your impressions of this year's French Open? Well, not, nothing short of uh, amazing. Huh? It's uh, 13... 13 major titles in one tournament. Uh, I, I don't even know where to begin. It, it's uh, it's uh, amazing, crazy, fantastic, unbelievable, whatever you want to call it. What were your observations of Novak through the tournament and in particularly how he was during the final? Well, I don't think you should look at Novak during the finals. You should look at Rafa. Mm. because Rafa, Rafa was doing certain things uh, 
which he has not always done against Novak, and uh, they, they worked for him quite well. Can you explain that? Well, uh, he hit his forehand down the line more, so he stopped Novak from sitting in the backhand corner and distributing right and left and uh, hitting a drop shot or attacking whenever he feels like that. Uh, he also, uh, whenever Novak came in, he would throw up a high lob and uh, back up a little bit and get the ball back in play from Novak's overhead. Because Novak does not hit his overhead, he places his overhead. And uh, Rafa is fast enough to get to it and hit it. And uh, But the most amazing shot uh, Rafa was hitting in the finals was his backhand drive cross court. I think that was opening the court up for him quite well. And uh, he, he hit that ball so well and so hard so many times. Uh, it, it was very noticeable to me. Did you think that Sitsipas had a chance versus Novak in the semi? Did you? I thought that Sitsipas and his tennis was very exciting tennis. In fact, it kind of reminded me. Just I just watched this morning again for research to get ready for the interview, your '84 final with John, and it just it seemed like Sitsipas kind of has that athletic all-court style that I think that you kind of possessed? Well, I think he has the modern version. I have the old-time old version. For sure, but, for uh, sure. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he, he plays tennis the right way. Uh, there are a couple of young guys who play tennis, in my opinion, the right way. And uh, as soon as they get experience and they, uh, they stop making too many errors, mainly guy like Shapovalov, uh, they're going to be very difficult to beat. I thought before the semis that Rafa is going to beat Schwarzman and that Novak is going to beat Tsitsipas. And I thought if there was a potential for one match being a lot closer, that it would have been Novak Tsitsipas. But uh, Tsitsipas uh, could not handle it uh, physically. Novak uh, was much better physically. And I was actually surprised he lost the fourth set because Tsitsipas was already struggling physically in the fourth set. Sitsipas was gassed and Joker kept hitting those drop shots and blew his legs out, it seemed. What have your observations of Sasha Zverev been this year, the two majors? Well, he, uh, the three majors, actually. Uh, but, sorry, uh, sorry, the three majors. He had, he had a very good draw in uh, Australia and at the U.S. Open, and he was able to take advantage of it. So uh, that was a big step forward for him. Do you have any feel for why things didn't work out with Zverev? Uh, I do have rather clear feeling, but uh, uh, <laughs> not going to go into that. Fair enough. One of my listeners, Adam Bradley, has uh, asked of you, which of the younger generation do you see has an opportunity to win majors moving forward? Well, there are a bunch of guys, and also uh, keep in mind that uh, Roger, Rafa, and Novak are not going to play forever. And once, once they stop or their level drops, somebody has to win the majors, right? It's not going to be a vacuum there. So uh, the guys like Tsitsipas, Zverev, um, Shapovalov, Yannick Sinner, don't forget about him. And you also will have some of the so-called older guys who will be looking at it and saying, hey, I want my piece too. And uh, that would be Dominic Thiem, for example. Yannick Sinner, the ball sounds like a shotgun blast off of his racket. Yeah, he hits the ball very clean. Uh, I observed him uh, last year in Halle. He was uh, there as a practice partner for guys, and 
he uh, practiced with Sasha Zverev when I was coaching Sasha, and uh, the guy hits the ball amazingly clean. Yeah, it's an unbelievable ball he hits. Do you have an opinion about Daniil Medvedev? Yeah, he had a great year last year, and uh, uh, I have been, I I did have some statistics on him which were made public, and uh, but I didn't have them this year, so I don't know where he dropped off. I did not watch him enough to make a to make an observation, but from the numbers you could pick it up very quickly if you had them available. Ivan, did you watch the women? Did you watch Iga Swiatek? Uh, very little, very little. Uh, she. She played nice uh, all-court game. There was a nice lesson from her to to all the other young players uh, because at that age, when you play doubles, it helps you. It doesn't hurt you. You don't get tired. It keeps you busy, uh, especially with this COVID uh, and all those rules. Sitting in the hotel room uh, is not a great option. And she was out there and basically practicing and uh, enjoying herself and uh, making her all-around court game better. So uh, her playing doubles, I thought it was a great idea. Uh, and by the way, Sophia Kennan also played doubles uh, through. You know, that's kind of an interesting, it's sort of interesting that the doubles. Yes, it depends, it depends on the player. Somebody uses it as practice and uh, they get, uh, they enjoy that. And uh, somebody, it becomes a hindrance and uh, then they shouldn't be playing. But for a young player, I always felt it was a good idea to play doubles. Yvonne, what was your opinion of the announcement of the new association that happened at the U.S. Open? I don't have enough. Uh, I don't have enough information about it to uh, to even form an opinion. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. I actually, but what I've had since I was a little kid, the book about your technique that uh, Eugene Scott wrote. And there's a, a gentleman mentioned named Ulrich Lurch, Ulrich Lurch. And he said, and you, yeah. you explained that he basically taught you how to crack. He really said to hit out as a kid. Could you talk a little bit about the, your, your beginnings? Well, anybody who is starting again, uh, in tennis and uh, they, uh, they have fun, but they also need to get good fundamentals. And I was very fortunate uh, from uh, Mr. Lerch that uh, I did learn good fundamentals. So I was able to keep improving as my body was getting stronger and uh, I was getting quicker and so on and so on. If you have to stop and change your technique as a kid, it takes a long, long time. And uh, uh, it, it could dwarf your progress too. I have seen it uh, uh, being at the USDA with some juniors or even at our academies when we ran them. Uh, when kids have bad technique, it's very, very difficult for them to keep improving because uh, it will eventually stop their growth and you have to go and work at it and uh, make, it, uh, make it better and instead of spending the time on other things, how, how they need to get better. The one, the one thing that you said though was that he really encouraged you to hit out. That, and that was something that like, it's it's harder to choke. It's harder to get nervous when you're when you're hitting out, trying to put balls away. Uh, could you explain that? It sounded well, I, sorry. I, yeah, I don't really recall him saying, you know, hit out. He was always saying 
stroke or hit through the ball, okay, to the finish. That in the future then gives you a chance to hit harder because your technique is good. If you have to kind of work the ball too much and you can't hit through because of your technique, you can't hit out eventually. But uh, to be talking about six and seven years old about choking that uh, that you're you're not hitting out and uh, that, that's too early. That's too early. Now, I have a, a question from one of my listeners. Her name is Charlotte Durante. She lives in Paris. She wanted to know what it was like for you to leave the Czech Republic to, or Czechoslovakia and curious if the Navratilova experience had any sort of consequences for you when that happened to you? Um, not really. It was very different. Martina asked for political asylum. Uh, I never did that. I was just traveling and uh, didn't really go back. And then uh, uh, when I received my U.S. citizenship, the Czechs took my Czech citizenship. That apparently was the law. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't worry about it too much. I just wanted to play. You just wanted to play. Was, was there a moment when you knew or that you could see that you could be a great player? Never, never really thought about it, never worried about it. I just wanted to have fun and play. When you finished the year one as a junior and you won the, the, those majors, was that the moment that you chose to turn pro? Uh, I think I played mostly uh, pro events by then. You know, in tennis, it's not like golf. Tennis is very different. You don't need to turn pro to uh, to be playing pro events and uh, and uh, so on. Was there a match that was there a match that you won that kind of you know opens your eyes to what could be? Was there ever like a big win as uh, when you were very young? When I was. Uh, young i would always uh, play my level or my age group and then uh, also age group up and every now and then you would have a win in the age group up over players who everybody you, yourself included thought were better than you and uh, it gives you encouragement and it i don't want to say it opens your eyes because that's that's just too big of a word or too big of a term yeah. but it gives you encouragement what I had few of those, but the one which really uh, jumps up in uh, my mind was uh, I was 18, and we had European Junior Championships in a small town in Czechoslovakia, and I was uh, playing with my friends from Sweden, who were two and three in the world, and uh, I always had difficulties beating them. I was beating them, but it was always close matches, tiebreakers, three sets, and stuff like that. And all of a sudden that week, the backhand topspin, which we have been working on for over a year with coaches at the club, uh, came in. And I beat them both very easily, 6-love, 6-1, and 6-2, 6-love. And the very following week, very next week, we played Czechoslovakian international championships. Hmm. And I was in the 18, in the men's, I was probably 15 in the country or something like that. And I beat very good players. Uh, I beat uh, 
Frank Pala, who was the Davis Cupper, he was top 30 in the world at one time. Then uh, Pavel Huchka, who uh, was a good player in the semis. I beat Jan Kodesh very easily. And, oh, wow. uh, uh, and uh, in the finals, I beat Zednik. And uh, it was uh, it was very uh, kind of unexpected. It was a huge, huge surprise. And at that point, Jan Kodesh was still top 20 in the world. I beat him 1-1-3. One, one, and three. And yes, it was at the, the club I practiced in every day and so on. But still beating Jan Kodesh 1-1-3 one, one, and three for an 18-year-old, uh, it was very encouraging. And it showed me if he can beat 20 in the world and I can beat him that easily, even if I had a great day and he had a bad day, yes, uh, I, I, can, I can get somewhere. How important was Wojtek feedback to your development as a pro? How did that relationship come to be? Well, he played doubles with uh, Jan Kodesh, and Jan Kodesh kept telling him, uh, hey, you know, come and look at this kid. And uh, I remember they watched me when I played the French Junior Finals. And uh, funny enough, I used to serve and volley because I didn't have any backhand. I had backhand slice, so I would chip it and uh, run to the net. Uh, I couldn't pass with the backhand until that one week where everything broke. <laughs> I mean, That's amazing. how do I explain that? I can't. I can't. But, uh, yeah, he he then um, said to me, look, I, I can help you. I have experience. I can help you with coaching and so on and so on. And we decided we're going to give it a try. And uh, and it worked for, for a long time very well. Now, there's a quote from Feedback that said, you're the only Eastern European that believed you could become number one. What did he mean by that? Well, I need. I guess you need to ask him. Yeah. But uh, a lot of European nations are small, and uh, and a lot of people get satisfied when they uh, they are big fish in small ponds. And uh, I certainly wasn't interested in that. Ivan, did you play with a Knizel racket? that became an adidas racket or was it always an adidas racket uh well both <laughs> uh what happened was that um, there was a czech gentleman he was with the kneisel company and he said hey we're making tennis rackets would you like to try some and i was 17 18 years old and uh i tried the rackets and i didn't like them and i said thank you but i, I don't like the rackets what don't you like and luckily, I had enough feel and I was able to express it. And it was helpful that I could do it in Czech. Uh, because in English at that time, I couldn't explain it properly. And they kept making better and better rackets until they make a racket I really loved. And But a year and a half later or something, the Knizel company went bankrupt. Huh. So I, I had enough rackets, but that was not, not the issue. But Adidas decided that uh, they want to sign me and uh, they want me to play with their racket as well. And I said, I, I really don't want to switch rackets. I see that as a huge mistake by young players in tennis and golf that they get better and they start switching equipment for money. And, uh, you know, it's, it's your instrument. You should play with what you like, no matter how little or how much you get paid. Anyway, so Adidas said, well, how about if we just... It's up for sale. How about if you purchase the molds? So they purchased the molds and they hired the engineer. And that's how it became an Adidas racket. But it was originally the Kneisel racket. And when did you link with Warren Bosworth, the uh, godfather of racket technicians? 
and I just I have a, 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 a lot, Ivan, a lot of my a lot of my listeners they love to, they they got so many questions about your rackets, man. They want to know all about your rackets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. In 1979, I was playing in April in uh, Frankfurt, and it was an indoor event, and it was uh, it was on the Supreme Court, which was really, really quick and low bouncing. And I won a match, and I played second round against Brian Gottfried, who was number three in the world, and he was playing with Snowbird Rockets. Well, Warren Bosworth was there uh, helping him to get used to the rockets and adjust the rockets and so on. But I didn't know who he was. And I lost 7-5, 7-6, something like that. And I was very, very unhappy that I lost that match because I thought I could have won it and so on and so on. And this gentleman waltzes into the locker room and says, hey, I'm Warren Brosworth. It's like 30 seconds after I sit down after the match and I'm <laughs> unhappy. Hey, I'm Warren Bosworth. You played a great match. I look at him and I told him in no uncertain terms what he can go and do for himself. <laughs> and <laughs> that's how we became best friends. <laughs> best friends. You were friends as well as he did your rackets? Oh, yeah. He, he became my second father, basically. Really? Yeah. He, uh, he was based in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Yep. And I was in Greenwich. It was about an hour and 15 minutes apart. And... Uh, and uh, so he would come with the rockets for practices, or I would go testing rockets in Glastonbury, and so on and so on. So we, we we would go to the hockey games together. We would play golf together, and so on. For our listeners, Warren Bosworth was the original godfather of racket technicians, and he and Ivan really were the first to change rackets after the, at the on the ball changes. And the, the rackets coming out of the bags that you see is all the beginnings of there. Now, I was listening to you talking about the way you strung your rackets. You played with uncoated gut. Correct. Can you explain that? Well, when you put coating on it, it gets thicker. Well, thinner gut can produce more spin. Uh, those days, producing spin wasn't that easy. Uh, because of the size of the rockets, because of the of the natural gut, uh, these days it's very easy to produce spin with the with the artificial strings and so on and so on and the wider and bigger frames. But uh, those days you could not afford if you wanted spin, you could not afford to give it away. So playing uncoated gut uh, would give me better chance to spin the ball a bit more. What was the thought process behind? the the switching of the rackets every nine games and did you carry different tensions in your bag i did not carry different tensions i would adjust and uh, the process was twofold number one uh, i wanted to make sure that after the racket gets looser by playing nine games and the new balls come that they're not going to fly so it would take somewhat constant and the second reason, obviously, is with uncoated gut, they were not going to last any more than another three or four games anyway. And and that's it. That The rest is history, man. You're the first one to have done that. I keep laughing about it because uh, everybody was saying I'm crazy, and now <laughs> everybody's doing it. So, uh, you know, that's all right. <laughs> and now, Yvonne, what's the story behind the sawdust? Uh, in Europe, uh, 
when you play on clay court, you had sawdust uh, box underneath the Empire's chair in just about every club. And if you sweat a lot and your hand gets wet, it dries out your hands. Uh, these days we wouldn't use it because again the the overwraps and the technology for the grips have has changed so much and improved so much. But those days we played with leather grips. Once those got wet, uh, it, it it was difficult to hold on. You couldn't get those grips dry. Now, would it be fair to say that the '84 French final? was really your coming out party as a great champion? Would you concur? That's the popular opinion. I would disagree with that. Why do you disagree? I, I, I tend to disagree with it too. I'm curious why you don't. When you win, uh, Craig, when you win one major, you're not a great champion. You could be a flash in the pan. And uh, uh, I would say the bigger match for me was beating John in the finals of the US Open. It had very similar setting where in both tournaments, uh, both uh, instances, he beat me twice before before the major, and then I was able to win uh, both of them. And once I won the U.S. Open, uh, everybody knew it wasn't luck anymore. Everybody knew it wasn't because this or that, but because I became a better player. What are your great memories of the 84 final? Well, just winning. I mean, anytime you play, winning is what you're after. You're not you're not out there to to you know just have a have a good show. You're out there to win. And winning a match like that, which seemingly is lost, and you're able to turn it around, it it's great. Now we can we can go into psychology and pose questions, which we will never know whether the answers are right or wrong. Uh, for example, Andy Murray beating Djokovic in the 2012 U.S. Open Finals in five sets. Would he have? Would he have? Would he have done that had he not played a great five-setter, even though he lost against him in Australia in January? In my opinion, probably not. Okay. Now, would I have beaten John coming from two sets to love down? if I had not beaten Vitas Gerulaitis in the Masters a couple of years earlier from two sets to love down. I don't really know that answer myself. However, if you do it once, you know you can do it again. So maybe that gave me that little extra belief. Who knows? It's, it's three all in the fifth. You're, you're serving 1540. John missed uh, an e You actually slipped. And he missed an easy forehand. He could have put it anywhere in the court. And then he missed a open down the line forehand pass. I mean, obviously you recall that moment. I know you do. Uh, no, no, I don't. You don't recall Actually, that moment. I don't. Oh man, I no, mean, it no. was that was a razor, razor tight match. Um, remember, remember, you watched it this morning. I played it 36 years ago. <laughs> I never watched it. <laughs> yeah, you never watched it. I never watched it. No, you never watched it. Amazing. You see, Craig, I'm, I'm uh, so, sorry to interrupt. I'm kind of a guy who looks forward, not back. Yeah, it sounds like you, uh, you but you, but when I've heard you talk to a V-Lander, Becker, and Mac, you seem like you have like almost photographic memory of your tennis. So that's why I wanted to kind of just see. I, I do have I do have pretty good memory, but I do not recall that moment. That's no problem. When did Tony Roach come into the picture for you? Tony Roach came into the picture in the fall of 1984. Uh, I was uh, 
I was not happy where I was in my tennis. Uh, I was two, three or four in the world for three or four years. And I was looking to get to number one. And uh, I decided to make a bunch of changes that was including a coaching change, conditioning change, how I'm going to play the game and so on. I sat down, uh, thought about my game, asked uh, two of my good friends on the tour to give me a good, uh, good opinion, honest opinion of my game and what they think I need to do to get better and uh, how to play Jimmy and John because I was having trouble with those two guys. And uh, then I spoke to my agent and I said, hey, you know, who do you think could be a good coach for me? And I had, uh, I had uh, one or two names and he came up with two or three names and uh, I decided to make a couple calls and uh, one person I didn't get, the other person I couldn't call because they were in Europe and it was late. I would have to wait till the next day. So I called Australia and Tony picked up the phone. Huh. And uh, we, we discussed things uh, for quite a while and uh, um, you know, I thought about it and I decided uh, if he's willing to go, I, I would love to try that. And uh, uh, we worked together for 10 years and it was nothing but phenomenal. What did he bring to your tennis that was missing? We, we don't have enough time, but uh, he, uh, he brought knowledge. Uh, he brought experience. He brought the leftiness. Um, I mean, just to say a few things. Uh, you tell a great story about how in 1989 you guys decided that the night, the following season you were going to take the clay court season off to try to go win Wimbledon. You you talked about going to Australia to practice with Tony after Indian Wells or Miami, one of the other. Actually, uh, after Miami, yeah. After Miami. I went from Miami to, uh, to Sydney, yeah. Uh, it was great because uh, Tony likes to work hard. I like to work hard. Uh, I was young and my body was able to take it, so uh, that was great. So we worked like dogs, and we were at his uh, we were at his uh, road racket resort where they had some grass courts. Uh, I was absolutely destroying the courts, of course, with my heavy footing. But uh, he he couldn't care less. He just wanted me to get practice. And uh, then one day he says to me. And that's one of my favorite days uh, of my tennis life. And he says to me, you know, mate, you need to play some matches. I go, yeah, Tony, I mean, where the hell we're going to get someone? He goes, you know what? Get ready for Saturday. I'm going to get some friends of mine. And uh, first one on court, and they built some stands. They had uh, maybe 1,500 local people watching. And uh, first set, I played against Rosewall, pro set. Second one, I played against Nuke, and then I played one against Tony. And it was so much fun to be on the court with those guys and, uh, and playing them and uh, just looking at them and getting the feel for their game as well. I was very fortunate one year Rod Laver gave me a hit uh, in Stratton Mountain. I was number one in the world, but uh, Rod, uh, Rod gave me a hit. What a treat that was as well. Yeah, you have great respect for the Australian legends. I think that's a very neat thing. Let's uh, let's be more precise. Uh, not only that, but I also have great respect for the history of the game. When you look back at that moment, trying to win Wimbledon, um, what are your uh, what are your great sort of memories? 
Well, I struggled uh, with Wimbledon. I didn't like being there uh, and so on and so on. And then uh, one of the things Tony said, hey, you need to get out of the city. You need to rent a house at Wimbledon and uh, you will be happier. And all of a sudden, uh, I just started loving it. We could go for walks. I didn't have to spend four hours a day in the car. I didn't have to uh, sit there when it's raining. I could go back to the house and put my feet up. We played some golf. Uh, I mean, all of that. And uh, that was uh, that was a huge change. And Tony was the one who suggested that. You started to play better on that grass. And that year in 90, you beat Becker and Mac at Queens. And I think you lost to Edberg in the semi. And you've said that Edberg was Ed, you said that Edberg was a, a horrible matchup for you. And it was it because of the kick serve out to the backhand? Uh, that was part of it. And uh, then he was also good mover. So I could not really, really hurt him that bad off the ground. And then when he came in, he was uh, covering the net extremely well. He, he was a difficult matchup for me, yes. Yvonne, what is the story of the uh, famous Argyle shirt, the shirt that uh, you are synonymous with? Um, well, I was with Adidas, and uh, it's a better question for my agent, Jerry Solomon. And uh, he basically came to me and said, look, they're going to do your line. Uh, this is what they would like to do. Uh, all they need is our approval for that. And I said, you know, I like it. And uh, the rest is history. Do you have a favorite one of those shirts? There's a few different uh, iterations, right? There's red, white, and blue. There's blue on blue. There's the genie coming out of the bottle. Which is the one that you love the most? Uh, well, the blue on blue was the original one. And then they introduced red into it. And then they started uh, going with, uh, you know, some people, two other models. Some people uh, thought it was a like a smiley face and uh my my favorite one actually was the square one which had the i and l on the back uh, but you had to know that's what it is to know it that's because good designs i prefer squares over circles and they were all squares or uh, rectangles huh. that's interesting your best moment on tour uh I don't know that I can pick one. I think uh, winning every major, uh, whether it's for the first or second time, first time is always special, uh, maybe more special, but uh, just uh, winning the majors is uh, probably my favorite time on tour. I mean, you won 98 tournaments, man. I mean, that's just so unbelievable. I have to like... Not, not, I appreciate it, but it's 94. Oh, sorry, 94 tournaments. Yeah. I mean... I mean, I, I probably should have won 98. That's what you meant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> can you explain your troubles in the major finals? Can you explain some of the challenges you had? Uh, very easily. I think the first few I was overachieving, and uh, my game clearly wasn't ready for, for that. And uh, then once, uh, once my game was ready, I... I I did quite well. You know, I just watched also this morning the 1991 Australian final. Uh, your loss to Becker. But, Yvonne, yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, man, you, from, from 84 to 91, you look like a different 
human being. I mean, your fitness and the chisel, like your face is so chiseled and the absolute ball ripping that you, you hit the ball so much harder in 91. The evolution to see those two matches back to back is incredible. How much better were you at 31 than you were at 24? Um, Craig, I think every tennis player improves every year, especially the top guys. It's just the question, can you improve as much as the guys around you? When you're number one in the world and you stop working on your game, you're going to get passed so quickly that you won't even know what hit you. So I always said to myself, you know, if I'm ahead two steps, let's keep working hard so maybe I can get ahead another step and be able to last a little longer there. So your observation is absolutely correct. Uh, my game was definitely better in 91 than in 84. Unbelievable. Uh, also, you're observing, the, you're observing the physical fitness. Well, that was part of my 84 sit-down with myself in the fall, get fitter and so on and so on. But uh, I had, uh, at one point, I had trouble in like 1982 or 83, I had trouble beating McEnroe. And before that, I was beating him quite uh, often. So I took a tape from a year and a half earlier and started watching that. And after four games, I said, this is pointless because any of these guys, either one of us today would kill the other guy from 18 months ago. That's how fast it was moving. The level was moving even then. Correct. When you look back on your career, what 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 pops into your mind in the most uh, grandiose way? I don't look back, believe it or not. I really don't. Uh, as I was saying earlier, I'm more of the guy of tomorrow than of yesterday. And uh, I never even think about my career unless somebody like you is asking me. Uh, I have friends, friends I play golf with in Connecticut and in Florida. Um, every now and then they will ask me about tennis. Who, who do I think is going to win the match tomorrow between these two guys and, and so on and so on. But we never really talk about my career. I, I, we don't do that at home. I don't do it with friends. Madison Square Garden or Flushing Meadows? Which did you like? Did you? I, I felt like you loved them both. I felt like you played incredible at both places. I played well at both places, Greg. And uh, the reason, or part of the reason is, uh, or one of the reasons is because I was able to stay home in Greenwich, Connecticut for both tournaments. And uh, uh, at the U.S. Open, I would not even go there on my day off. I would play on my own court, which I like playing on. And it was identical court as the center court. And at Madison Square Garden, I would uh, go in the morning for practice and then come back and then uh, stay at home and then go for the match. And uh, just being at home and not having to change anything, it felt like it was not taxing me mentally as much as the other players. Can you explain your success with Andy Murray? And what was that experience like for you? I enjoyed working with Andy. Um, I was able to convince Andy or get Andy on the same page, uh, believing how he should play. And because we were on the same page, uh, we were making good progress. Andy was a great player before I came around, and he is a great player now. And I'm just uh, very happy that I was able to give him a little bit 
and maybe that's what has made the difference. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We go fast. I say it, you say what comes into your mind. Are you ready? Sure, let's try it. Is it true you are the Scrabble champion of your country club? Uh, no. I never, I never played Scrabble with anybody at the country club. Uh, we did play Scrabble to, uh, to kind of uh, uh, get rid of the boredom on the road and uh, on the planes. And, uh, and uh, I didn't like losing, so I bought myself a Scrabble book where they listed uh, 83 two-letter words and, uh, and uh, 356 uh, three-letter words you can make of those two-letter words. I memorized those, and then I was doing much better. Davis Cup. Uh, outdated competition. Do you have a strong memory of winning Davis Cup in 1980? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, but uh, not necessarily in Prague. Uh, the, we won the Davis Cup really in Argentina. When uh, uh, we went there, we were huge underdogs. I have not beaten Villas or Clerk once anywhere, and uh, I managed to beat them both on their court at home, and uh, then uh, Thomas Schmidt and I won double. Uh, that was nobody expected that, including us. And then uh, I felt a lot of pressure throughout the fall, knowing we're playing Italy in the finals and that we're going to be the favorites. And uh, But luckily, uh, we both played well, and Thomas uh, beat Panata, and uh, and we were 2 nothing up. And then, you know, from 2 nothing, you very rarely use them, lose the Davis Cup guy. How did you string your racket tension? I'm sorry? I, I used to string at 72 pounds, and then we went to 72 and a half. I mean, that's unbelievably tight. These rackets must have just broke on the machine. Uh, they did break a lot of strings on the machine. That's why with the uncoated gut, you had to really be a good stringer to be able to do that. Size of your grip? Uh, I think four and five eighths. What was the story behind the French Foreign Legion hat you would wear? Uh, the, the long hat, the, the build hat with the long back? That was so hot in Australia, and uh, actually at Road Rocket Resort, there were some kids who were wearing that, and uh, so I borrowed one and tried it, and I liked it. One of my guys, German Nieves, wanted to ask if you thought it was still a good fashion statement. Uh, couldn't care less. I just knew that I can dip one in the ice, and every two, every two games I have fresh ice pack on my neck while I'm playing. Where do you keep your trophies? They're in my house. They uh, they are in the room. We have a big room, and uh, they are uh, the trophies I have. Oh, that must be beautiful. Uh, did you save your credentials? No. You just threw them away when you left the tournament. I, I don't even know that we had credentials early on. <laughs> That's a good point. Your favorite tournament? Uh, Australian Open. Your favorite city? Uh, probably Melbourne. Your favorite court could be any court in the world. My home court when I lived in Greenwich. The court at your house? Yes. Beautiful. The best endorsement deal you ever had? Well, I think my um, relationship with Adidas was a long-term and uh, beneficial to both parties. I mean... You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, any, any endorsement has to work for both sides, and I think that one really did. Did you ever try to get your daughters to play tennis? They did play tennis when they were younger. They enjoyed it, and uh, 
then when they started playing tournaments, uh, people were just annoying them too much with too many questions. And, uh, so they moved them to Let's move into our fifth and final set. This is what I typically call the king of the court. Uh, but I think in this uncertain year, I also I kind of make the question twofold. So if you could make a change in the sport, what might it be? But also, how are you feeling about tennis right now? Well, I think, uh, and I will speak about men's tennis because uh, I will not pretend that I follow women's tennis that closely. Uh, I think I think men's tennis uh, is in really great shape. Uh, they have, uh, even though Roger and Rafa and Novak are on the way out uh, sooner or later, they have a lot of young players who uh, who will be able to take over. So I think that's uh, that's very very good. Is there anything in the sport that you think would be a nice change if you if you could do it without any aggravation? Well, I think. Two things come to mind right away. I would unify the scoring, uh, meaning uh, tiebreakers in the majors uh, in the final. I'm sorry, let me put it this way. I would uh, unify how the majors play the final set. Uh, In my opinion, the best format is the one in Australia, where at six all they play a super tiebreaker. I think super tiebreaker is harder to win on luck. Uh, It shows it clearly or more often the better player uh, wins than winning seven points, winning 10 points is much, much harder. So that's number one. Number number two, I would put that in the ATP tour. I mean, the doubles players play super tiebreaker before uh, for the final set. Uh, why can't the players at six off in the fifth set or in the third set play a super tiebreaker? That would be number one. Uh, number two, electronic line calling. It has been uh, uh, at uh, Cincinnati, you know, in quotation marks, uh, in New York. And they're doing it this week in Germany. They did it last week in, uh, in uh, St. Petersburg as well. And I think it works really well. There is no arguments. Uh, and also, even though people will say, well, human element and uh, this and that. And I say human element, you know, nonsense because human element can influence the match. Yes, you have the Hawkeye, but you you had a point under control on opponent's serve, and now they get a first serve again, and they ace you. Human element, my butt. Yvonne, uh, listen, I just want to say thank you very much for this um, tremendous uh, chat we just had. Was, it, was this a one-day tournament you just played, or are you back out there tomorrow? No, that was a tour championship where there is, a, uh, there is about 13 or 14 one-day events during the season. And if you finish top five in any of them, you qualify for the Tour Championships. And that's what it was. And uh, that's my fourth year I played in it. And every year I struggled to qualify. This year, actually, I qualified earlier with about three events to go. And uh, last three years, I qualified in the last event. Two of them, I made birdies on the last hole to get in. And then I... I had good finishes. I finished third, first, and second three last three years. So, uh, you know, it just shows you that maybe just getting in gives you a chance to do well. Uh, listen, uh, have a terrific rest of your week. And uh, like I said, this was a great uh, honor for me to have a chance to speak to you. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember my father 
I said, man, you got to see this guy. This is the this is this guy is the guy. And my dad said, well, you always love the you always love the bad guy. So no, no, no. I always love the guy who is the next big thing. And you know, when we were growing up, you were the next big thing. So it's really been a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you, man. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the chat. Ivan Lendl, uh, you are released. Thank you very much. Huge thank you to Ivan Lendl. And if you want to do a cool thing, you can book Ivan to make a personalized message, like a birthday, a congratulations, whatever you want, at cameo.com. That's C-A-M-E-O.com. Huge thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. We just re-upped the tennis t-shirt of 2020, the quarantine classic shirt, which is a cool take on the old junior tennis tournament shirts we would get back when we were kids. We're taking orders for the Blanc, the Terabat 2, and the Bear, which is green. Shoot me a note if you want to get on that program. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.